0: You're listening to Bodyful, a podcast that explores the wonder and complexities of living in this human form, and how we can engage in an ongoing practice of bodyfulness to become more fully at home in ourselves and in the interconnected web of Gaia, the living earth. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and I'm the founder of the Gaia Center for Embodied Healing, where we support folks in their growth and healing work with somatic psychotherapy and embodiment practices. We hear all the time about the importance of being mindful and it's time to invite our bodies to the party. Welcome to Bodyful. Hi friends, I am doing another solo episode and in case you didn't listen to the previous one, just as a heads up if you're newer to me, I often like to record solo episodes and podcast intros outside walking. So yes, that means the occasional car sound and dog and bird and sometimes other critters. Um, So that's all part of the journey. And also sometimes you'll hear me breathing a little bit hard because our street is slightly uphill one way, both ways, right? (laughs) So Um, anyway, I was thinking about what I wanted to share about in this episode, because there's just so many, so many possibilities that I have yet to cover here. Um, but the thing that was calling to me the most right now is kind of some 101, um, sex therapy concepts. And, and I guess when I say sex therapy, I really am just referring to the, the kinds of things that would come up in sex therapy, um, but also just things that come up in now that I have more knowledge in that area that just come up with my normal therapy clients that have come up in my own life and that are just kind of like basic fundamentals that we don't learn about in sex education, LOL, as though most of us actually got comprehensive sex education anywhere. So we're all kind of getting that now in adulthood And there are some pieces of information that I just really wish that I would have had sooner. So if you have done some reading or podcast listening in this arena, some of the concepts I'm sharing about may be review for you today. But if you're like me, um, it never hurts to have the same, if it's a useful concept, I need it repeated about 2,000 times before it fully sinks in. So um, so we'll jump into it. And I'm really just going off the cuff here. I did not prepare for this. Not that I won't ever prep for a solo episode, but sometimes I just enjoy kind of winging it and going with whatever emerges in the moment and allowing it to be organic in that way. So here we go. So the first concept, that I want everybody to know about is the idea that there is more than one style of desire. So a lot of times, like, people use the term sex drive to refer to, like, oh, I have a love sex drive or my partner has a higher sex drive. I'm not saying you're wrong. (laughs) However, um, Emily Nagoski, who wrote the fabulous book, Come As You Are, Which goes into all of the concepts that I'll be sharing about, I think, um, in today's episode. She definitely makes a good point as to why that word is not so helpful and that it really is kind of a misnomer. Um, I won't get into all of that, but suffice to say that if we are comparing it scientifically to What actually constitutes a drive, sex is not a drive, and that there can actually be problematic things with us looking at it in that way. So, rather, we can talk about what our sexual desire is. And many times there is a desire differential or discrepancy in a relationship, and that is the most common reason that couples seek therapy. So, If you experience that, if you have concerns about your own desire or the desire discrepancy in your partnership, just know that A, that is very, very normal. It does not indicate there's anything wrong with you or with the relationship or that you're just suddenly completely unattracted to your partner. There are scientific reasons why desire changes throughout either just in an individual over time or, and or throughout a relationship over time. So with desire styles, there are really kind of two buckets primarily being spontaneous desire and responsive desire. Spontaneous desire, and I'm not pausing the recording because I'm just going to let you guys in behind the scenes. I'm pausing talking about sex right now as my neighbor's driving by with his window down. <laughs> <laughs> um and anyway, here we go. Um so spontaneous desire is basically a lot of times what we think of when we think of having sexual desire. Period. Like, oh, I am horny or I just really see this person and I just want to take their clothes off. I'm attracted to them and therefore I want to, you know, be sexual with them. Like that is basically spontaneous desire. There's some sort of sexual stimuli and that could be as little as seeing someone that you think is attractive, whether that's your partner or someone else, boom, the desire is there. And hormonally in our development, a lot of times that kind of desire style is going to be more prevalent when we are in our younger, like adolescent to young adult years and also when we have sort of the chemical um, processes that happen in the limerence phase of a relationship aka newly dating um, where there's all of the like literally your brain is being (laughs) hijacked by chemicals but often in a good way um, in a way that feels really pleasurable Um, that also can impact and kind of maybe someone who might tend toward um, the other style of desire during a long-term relationship might appear to have more responsive desire or spontaneous desire um, in that limerence phase. So that's spontaneous. And that's what likes culture and media, movies and TV and all of that basically tells us we should all be. Now, Again, I'm doing this walking down my street. I don't have the stats in front of me, but you can easily find them online. You can look up either Income As You Are or um, look up, you know, responsive, spontaneous desire statistics on Google. I'm sure you can find it um, of the percentage of people who fall into that category. But suffice to say, like, there's some truth to the stereotype that people, um and I guess I should say, I'm not sure how they would categorize it because they, the research has not been great in terms of in being inclusive of trans and gender non-conforming or gender diverse folks. So for purposes of reflecting what's been done in the lackluster research, I might say men, or it could include also just anyone with a penis, um, that they're more likely to have spontaneous uh, desire than uh, women or people with a vagina or vulva. But it's certainly not always the case. And there are uh, definitely men who, um, in our society, just the hypersexuality and masculinity and all of that being correlated um, who, if they do have more spontaneous desire, uh, or don't rather, if they don't, then they feel, um, a lot of insecurity about that because of what our society tells them they should be like. And so they might wonder, you know, what's wrong with me, but certainly, um, women or people with vulva, um, also experience that, uh, insecurity, especially if they went from you know younger years having that more spontaneous style, and then that has changed either through their own development or through the development of the relationship, okay, so the second style, which I think I already said accidentally at one point, um, is responsive, and so this is where really desire follows arousal and that arousal can be physiological or it can be cognitive or it can be a mix of the of both. So let's say for instance, um, that someone who has responsive desire just never really feels quote unquote in the mood. They're just never like in that space where they're like, oh my God, I really want this. And again, they might be going, well, what's wrong with me? I used to want this when the relationship was newer, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they might find that they're only going to get there to the sort of wanting if the arousal stimulus is already present and that could look like um you know don't try to touch my erogenous zones until you have you know given me a little bit of like a back massage kind of rubbed my arms and legs like that's why starting with non-erogenous touch can be so so important um, for anyone, it can be really nice, but also especially for folks with responsive desire, that can be a way of kind of igniting the arousal. Um, whereas if you start straight with like, you know, boobs or butt or genitals, um, that just can be can be a really big turn off, which we'll get to um, in in a minute. Kind of that idea of turn ons and turn offs. So anyway. Um, that arousal could be physiological, like touch, um, or it could be, uh, cognitive. And that, that's where like my favorite resource to recommend is the app Dipsy, D-I-P-S-E-A, where you can listen to amazingly produced audio erotica. And most of the stories are like mm, 10 to 15 minutes long. Um, and there's so many ways that you can filter them like and, and it 's diverse you can filter for you know african American black voices. you can filter for um, girl on girl or guy on Guy or whatever threesomes in public, like different fetishes and fantasies um, so it 's a really, really wonderful app. They do have other features too, I think like little sleep stories and stuff i 've not really utilized that part of it, but just for the just basic, brilliantly produced audio erotica stories. Um, Those are something that say someone with responsive desire could either like say they're wanting to either initiate something with their partner. And so they want to kind of get a head start with listening to that on their own, or they could ask if their partner wants to join in listening to that. And maybe there is or isn't some of that kind of Um, non-sexual physical touch going on while listening to the story, um, which of course, throughout the the length of the story may evolve into more sexual touch um, because that cognitive arousal may create desire in the person who has that more responsive style. So, um, and of course, you know, video porn is another resource for that. There's all kinds of ethical porn companies uh, that are out there nowadays. The if I'm saying that right, is one that comes to mind, but there's so many. You can just Google like ethical porn um, 2022 and you'll find some articles that folks have put together recommending different websites where, yes, you pay a little, um, but that's important because we need to know that the people who are behind the scenes um, are getting paid and that, you know, money has to be exchanged when we are expecting a service to be ethically created unless there's advertising, but I don't know. I think that at least what I understand in the world of ethical porn is usually there's going to be somewhat of a, um, subscription service kind of model involved or, or like pay per view. Um, and there's some really good stuff out there. So, not all people are into that visual. Um, and so if that's not for you, I still encourage you to give Dipsy a try. Another great app while I'm thinking of it, this is a total sidebar is called lasting. And I often recommend that for couples where, and I say couples, I know that that's not inclusive of all romantic relationships, I don't know if lasting is built at all for the ability to include more than two partners. I don't think that it is. So, you know, we could say that it's, it's more designed for traditionally monogamous folks. But it is a great resource for them, including some specific little audio or not audio, um, little modules of lessons where you can read stuff and then answer questions and then your partner does the same and then you get to sit and kind of compare answers. There's one on sexual communication and it is such a good doorway for folks who have had a hard time talking about those issues and are maybe not in a place where they feel like they want or need to do sex therapy or couples therapy at that moment but they need some help to kind of facilitate those conversations. So that one's called lasting. Um, Okay, back to responsive and spontaneous desire. So it's very often that maybe one person, and again, if we kind of just go with the sort of typical um, word of couple for just ease right now, one person in the couple uh, may have more spontaneous desire and one person may have more responsive desire. And it's hard for both people in different ways. So if you're listening to this and you have been on one side of that equation, sometimes we've been on both sides because there's no, like, it's, it's all relative. There's no objectively, this person is high desire and this person is low desire I mean, I'm sure that there are given studies that have to categorize things like that, but for the purpose of what's useful in our lives, it's really just that there's typically a higher and lower desire person in each couple. So um, you may have experienced both sides of that in different relationships um, or even in the same relationship at different times. Um, If you have not, if say, you've always been the higher desire partner or lower desire partner, then even doing some learning about this, like reading come as you are, would be an excellent thing to do. Um, Just to try to understand what's challenging from the other person's perspective. Because a lot of times that stuff only comes out in the context of fights where people's feelings are hurt and they're making it whatever you know, the partner's lack of interest or lack of initiating or whatever, um, they're making that mean something about them or about the relationship. And that's just not always the case, but it's really hard. Like we can know something intellectually. We can know like, okay, I get it. You're telling me that you do still find me attractive. You do still love me, but this is, it just doesn't feel that way. So really understanding the differences between these desire styles and how they manifest can increase not only our empathy for our partner but can actually decrease the conflict that we experience like yeah it might still there's still the need to navigate that desire differential but with this understanding it so often just takes a lot of the emotional heaviness out of it, a lot of that kind of the meaning that we've made out of it. and just helps us look at it as more of these are just kind of physiological differences that we have. So um, there's a lot more that I could be said about navigating desire differentials. There's literally entire books and courses on that subject. but I just encourage you to talk if you're in a partnership, Talk with your partner and help to understand each other's desire styles. And, you know, if, if you're both on that spontaneous side, cool, that's probably easier. But if at least one person or maybe both or more people are more on the responsive side, then there's a huge opportunity to get to know what are the possible ways of igniting arousal again, physiologically or cognitively or both, in that person, that can make them more receptive. And here's the other thing that's really important for um, responsive desire folks to keep in mind. So there's kind of a uh, colloquially, colloquially this notion that I like to talk about around red, yellow, green. Um, and for us to understand that just because we're not in the green, we're not like, oh yeah, I'm totally down for this. Like I want this, let's do it. Doesn't mean that it has to be just like quote unquote duty sex. Doesn't mean that it has to just be like completely non-enjoyable. A lot of people have had the experience of like maybe they just weren't really feeling it. They weren't quote in the mood and then they kind of went with it anyway in the context of a safe loving relationship and they actually ended up enjoying themselves you know and that would that would probably be because if they were more responsive desire and or there was something pushing their brakes which we'll get to in a minute then you know they maybe weren't there to start with but they were there enough they weren't completely in the red zone that They were in the yellow and they went with it and maybe it even turned green at some point. Maybe they started to enjoy it or at the very least they were like, oh, that was fine. You know, it wasn't a negative experience. That's really our hope. Obviously, we do not want to be creating negative experiences for anyone. We do not want it to be purely about obligation or duty. But just to know that if you're in the yellow, there are so many reasons why we might choose to have sex with our partners or be sexual with our partners. And remember that, I'm pausing for this car. <laughs> um, remember that sex does not equal intercourse, that there are so many vast expressions of sexuality and having sex can look like so many different things. It does not have to mean penis and vagina intercourse or whatever other variation of penetrative sex there are so many ways outer course that can be really beautiful and especially when folks are navigating um any kind of like vaginismus or vulvodynia vaginal pain issues that can be a really really important thing to develop more in the relationship so where was i oh my gosh so many things (laughs) um so I think I'll jump to, i th- I'm in the middle of a thought and it may come back to me, but for now, I'm just going to jump to the other big topic that I've kind of alluded to, um, for now that I want to cover. And that is the dual control model. So there's essentially, we use the metaphor of the gas pedal and the brake pedal. The gas pedal is the SES, the sexual excitation system. So that is essentially what turns you on. Like, what are the things that when they are added to the equation, like that gets you going, that creates that arousal and then maybe also creates desire. But remember, those two things are not necessarily synonymous and do not often or so say, do not always occur um, synchronously. So there's that, the gas pedal, and a lot of times the advice that's given in like, you know, the kind of stereotypical cosmos of the world, um, it's all about like how to turn your man on or whatever the opposite in the you know, men's health magazine. And so it's all about like trying to get us to put more, like be able to p- press the gas pedal more. And that's great sometimes, but more often we need to be addressing what's hitting our brakes, what's causing our brakes to to activate. So the brake pedal or the sexual inhibition system is the stuff that turns you off, the stuff that makes you go, oh, God, I'm too stressed. And there's just, you know, there's a newborn in the room next door, um, all of those things. And anxiety and stress are like, I mean, kind of synonymous in some ways different in different ways. But those are like the biggest culprits of um, things that push people's brakes. And so, you know, again, we have to get more specific with that. Like if there's anything that can be done to address the things that are activating the brakes. And sometimes there is a freaking parking brake on. Like there's not just the, oh, I got a bad night's sleep last night. And so being tired is something that pushes my brake pedal, but also if there's just underlying lack of emotional safety in the relationship or unresolved sexual trauma or any number of other things, um, unresolved body image stuff that that may essentially be like trying to operate the vehicle with the parking brake always on. And then we wonder why it doesn't go so great. Right. So, um, Really knowing what are the things that activate my brake pedal, my gas pedal, and for my partner, what are the things for them? And helping each other recognize the importance of context. Context is everything. So uh, being able to address those contextual variables can help us be a lot more, quote, successful um, in creating the kinds of sexual experiences that are going to be positive and nurturing of the connection. So I think that's the biggest thing. I think the thought that I was in the middle of earlier was just kind of that idea that there are a lot of reasons to, that we may choose to engage in sex with our partner and that it doesn't always have to be like that you're in that super green place. Um, but just really changing the thinking around it and really really being mindful of if you are pushing yourself to say yes or go along with something when you are in the red zone when it and a lot of people it's like this is one of those things that i get sometimes there may be a lot of need to get really detailed and nuanced and like talk with your therapist and do a lot of reflecting on like what is that distinction for me between the yellow zone and the red. But historically, I've found that most people, they just know, like they know that difference for them between what feels like a yellow and what feels like a red. So honor that. And, and that there may be, you know, it does change day to day. There may be some things that are always gonna be a red for you, like context-based things, like we're sleeping at, you know, one of our parents' houses. That may just always be a red for someone. Um, but there's other things that are going to be like, you know, just based on that particular day. So knowing, you know, that it's always important to check in with yourself and maybe important if you're, especially if your partner or you is going through some trauma healing, check in with yourself, check in with each other to make sure that as you're about to engage in something that it's not a red. So that's really, really important. Um, but yeah, exploring the gas pedal, the brake pedal, um, I think those are the really the biggest ideas that I wanted to share about today. And that was a very brief, um, overview. So hopefully it was helpful. I will include, of course, come as you are, um, and Emily's website in the show notes. And if you have other topics related to this, that you'd like me to get into, or, a guest that you'd like me to invite on to get into more sex-specific topics. That is definitely something that I want to make lots of space for in the podcast. So I'm happy to take any suggestions or questions related to this. And I hope that some of this info today was helpful. Uh, And I'll see you guys next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it, that would mean so much to me. For show notes as well as a transcription of this and previous episodes, head over to www.gaiacenter.co. That's G-A-I-A Centre.co. You can follow us on Instagram at the Gaia Centre, and follow me at Val K Martin V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. Look for the link on our website where we'll share about groups and events we're offering locally in Nashville, as well as tips and resources from our therapists that we hope will be valuable and relevant wherever you may be listening from. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.